Hello, and welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for October 6th. I'm Logan Finney. This week, our producer Ruth Brown sat down Tuesday morning with reporter Ryan Soupy of the Idaho Press to discuss labor shortages across Idaho and how the pandemic has impacted those in the workforce. Then, Ruth and I looked at workforce issues in specific sectors of state government. But first, on Tuesday, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan wasted no time exercising her temporary gubernatorial authority, issuing an executive order banning state agencies from requiring COVID testing and vaccines. She also contacted the Idaho National Guard to ask about deploying them to the U.S.-Mexico border, a query that Major General Michael Garshak turned down as no request for National Guard assistance had been submitted. McGeehan is acting governor while Governor Brad Little is visiting the U.S.-Mexico border. Little said Tuesday he would immediately rescind all actions taken by McGeehan upon his return. For more, visit the Idaho Reports blog, and you'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Now, here's Ruth's interview with Ryan Soupy. Ryan, you published a story recently about the labor shortages in Idaho. Can you walk me through uh, what your takeaway was on that story and how the pandemic has impacted the workforce in Idaho? Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I, I guess I'll take you back to April. Um, back in April, I, as everyone else, I was walking around downtown Boise and started seeing all these help wanted signs. So I started to call some local business owners and employers, see how, what was going on. And um, essentially they said since mid pandemic last year, um, they haven't been able to find workers. Um, so this month uh, I called them back and said, how's it going now? And you might think that things had gotten better, but they said, same, same deal. Um, still can't hire people. Uh, no, no applications coming in. Um, nobody walking in the door and saying, I want a, a job. And it's interesting because you look at um, Idaho's economy in general, we've done well, significantly better, as I'm sure your listeners know, than uh, most other states in recovering from this pandemic. Um, and our labor st- statistics are good. I mean, we have low unemployment rate, which for uh, people hiring um, isn't such a good data point because that means a lot of people already have jobs. Um, but our workforce has grown and it, it seems like it's just certain industries that uh, can't find workers. And that tells us people are looking for other jobs, essentially, other types of jobs. Which industries are struggling most? Well, um, retail, restaurants, uh, construction, which is a a pre-pandemic thing. They've been struggling to find workers for years now. Um, Certain manufacturing, um, healthcare workers, uh, and others. In June, Governor Little uh, withdrew Idaho from federal programs that were intended to, of course, enhance unemployment benefits to workers who lost jobs or lost hours during the pandemic. Uh, Little, along with other Republican governors, withdrew Idaho early. Uh, What did you find were some of the consequences or benefits of uh, Governor Little's actions? I guess, first of all, I'll say uh, this whole labor shortage in general is a bit puzzling to economists. Um, Nobody has a solid answer as to why this is happening, just some really good educated guesses. But one thing that I'm hearing is those enhanced unemployment benefits were not an effect of the current labor shortage. I'll go back to April again. Um, I was talking to employers. This was one thing they brought up. They said, we think uh, these juicier unemployment benefits are keeping people from 
coming back to work. And the governor said the same thing. He was hearing this from employers. Uh, we need to end the enhanced benefits to get people back to work. And uh, we're now, what, two, three months, three months later, uh, and we're still having a worker shortage. Um, and you can also take a look at some of the data. I mean, uh, unemployment went down a tenth of a percent since June. Um, and then in my story, I also referenced a couple studies. Uh, these are national studies that looked at the states. I think there was 26 states that ended unemployment benefits early. Um, 22, I want to say, in June. And these studies looked at, uh, for example, um, employment. Did people get jobs? Uh, one study found that in the states that ended unemployment and enhanced benefits early, one in eight people found a job by August. Um, and it also looked at spending. Um, were people spending more money um, because essentially they got an, a job and were able to spend more money? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, actually, they started spending less money, about 53 cents for every dollar that they lost in benefits. Uh, they lost, spending went down in these states. So point being, um, those benefits ending had maybe a minimal impact at best uh, on getting people back to work. And I will just mention, I asked the governor to respond to that and he stuck to his guns. Um, he said he heard employers loud and clear, ending benefits was the right thing to do. So, I know you also wrote a bit about how the demographics of the workforce has changed, uh, specifically with ages and um, women. How have the demographics of Idaho workers changed a bit in the pandemic? Yeah, well, essentially, um, and I'm relying on the Idaho Department of Labor for this, uh, they did an analysis of the essentially the first year of the pandemic and how that changed the workforce. Um, so March to March, essentially. And what they found was um, a lot of older people left the workforce, um, whether that was due to fears of the virus, they didn't want to go to work and get sick because they were at greater risk, or they um, retired early. So last year, lots of companies after shutdowns, um, economic downturn, they had to make layoffs. And one thing they did was offer people early retirement. So we had a lot of older folks leaving the workforce. Also, as a result of the pandemic, people had additional responsibilities, such as uh, child care or elder care. The pandemic increased the difficulty and the cost of both child care and elder care. Um, lots of businesses had to shut down as a result, child care businesses, for example. Um, and that meant the responsibility of child care or elder care fell on families. Maybe uh, someone had to take care of their parent or their grandparent or their child and if they have to do that full time, they can't work, right? And a third, just burnout. I mean, especially in certain public facing jobs, um, the pandemic has been very difficult. Um, servers in restaurants, uh, teachers, in some cases, interacting with the public has been difficult when they face um, harassment about mask rules, for example. Latest example of that, the city of Boise recently had to increase security at its libraries and City Hall and Idaho Ice World, the ice rink, because their staff was facing harassment about mask mandates. And as a result, I mean, I spoke with uh, Dr. Samia Islam. She's an economist at Boise State University. 
she said, maybe that's rational to say, I don't want to work in that job anymore if I don't have to. And her argument was, this is showing us that that kind of work can't be sustained and something, something needs to give. Sure. Um, I suppose working at a library uh, initially could be seen as a peaceful job and when it's less peaceful. <laughs> yeah. And I will just add one more thing, Ruth. Um, as far as demographics, um, not all of this is pandemic related. I mean, we've also seen certain trends that have been happening for 20 years or so are coming together with these pandemic trends at the same time. For example, we're seeing some uh, generational differences coming to a head. I talked to uh, a manager at R&H Machine, R&H Machine, sorry, it's a foundry in Caldwell. Um, they have right now in their shop a good amount of older workers, but they're struggling to find younger workers. Um, and this is a trend across industries, construction as well. I recently reported on a survey of construction industries across the country, and all of them, for the most part, are saying we're, we're struggling to hire millennials. And some of these places even have departments within their business that are dedicated just to trying to hire millennials. Okay, we got to strategize about how we're going to attract these younger people. So that as well, I would add as... Uh, in addition to the pandemic-related issues, just generational issues as well. Are there indicators as to why that is? I think uh, it would be easy to make snap judgments and say uh, millennials don't want to work, but I don't know that that's necessarily the reason uh, some millennials may not be taking jobs. I suppose millennials, depending on where they are, many of them have children, families, um, issues of that nature, Do you, are there indicators as to why they may not be taking uh, some of these jobs or applying for them? It's hard to say. Um, depending on who you ask, um, Brock Magara, he's the manager at RH Machine. Um, he's kind of an old school guy. Um, and he says he his opinion is that millennials are less motivated to work. They don't want to show up on time. Um, it's just a a different type of worker. Um, that's kind of the old school view. But someone else might say millennials want to work, but they want to work under different conditions. Um, this pandemic, it opened up some ideas about how we treat our workers, how we pay our workers. For example, uh, Samia, the economist from Boise State, um, she says, I think we're at a point where society has to reset the bar on the expectations from workers, uh, especially now all of us have a greater appreciation of the fragility of life. And the current situation is a signal that people are reassessing their priorities and their expectations. Yeah, I think the country will see a sort of a reckoning with women in the workforce as well. Um, of course, in the pandemic, many women have left jobs or reduced hours. Uh, due to childcare, the lack of available childcare, or it was worsened by young children not being able to go to school, yet they still need supervision uh, and care throughout the day. So I suppose that's a topic for another day. But right now I want to shift into um, some state employees rather than just focusing on the private sector. I know state employees, such as the Idaho Department of Correction, has faced a staffing shortage uh, recently, um, specifically in correctional officers, they had to increase 
their pay rate due to the shortage of available uh, correctional officers, which of course are the officers that um, patrol the prisons. Can you walk me through what are some of the changes that IDOC has had to make? I'm glad you mentioned uh, this isn't just a, a private business thing. I mean, this is happening across employers, uh, nonprofits, public employees. Uh, I just saw the city of Twin Falls is struggling to hire employees as well. Um, but yeah, the, the Department of Corrections for some time now has struggled to hire prison guards. Um, and the reason for that was uh, they were paying less than uh, the Snake River facility. That's an Oregon Department of Corrections in, in, in Ontario. They were paying something like $6 less an hour starting pay for correctional officers. So recently they uh, boosted that pay, I think by two and a half dollars or so. Um, and they saw immediate an immediate response. Um, the IDOC director, Josh Tewalt, he went to the legislature um, virtually uh, a few weeks ago and told lawmakers, I believe it was over 100 applications came in after they boosted the pay and offered uh, hiring bonuses and retention bonuses as well and raises for their current employees. So it's not just new hires that are seeing these benefits. It's the ones working there as well. And the reason this was so significant, this shortage for Department of Corrections, um, it had significant effect on current guards. Uh, some are working 16-hour days. Uh, Associated Press reported that. That's one shift. I mean, that's like a double. You don't get to see your family that night. You got to go home, go to sleep, and then you're back at work the next day. Um, but there are also less obvious impacts of this shortage. Um, prisoners themselves were being affected. Um, Josh Chiwal told lawmakers that um, as a result of having fewer guards and just staff in general, not just guards, um, prisoners couldn't attend certain programs uh, like rehab programs. And these programs are, are necessary to reduce sentences. So now we're looking at because prisoners can't attend certain programs uh, because there's a shortage of uh, prison staff, they're looking at more time spent in jail. And it, it's also just tougher on inmates in general. Um, they get less recreation time um, because there aren't enough guards to staff certain posts, that sort of thing. Definitely. I also watched that meeting. Uh, maybe for listeners who have um, never never been incarcerated, just to walk through that, there are certain programs that uh, inmates are required to complete before they can be released. And so I think uh, the director was making note that because the inmates cannot complete their programming, therefore they have to sit longer in incarceration when perhaps in other times they wouldn't have to to do that, which is hard on them and it's hard on um, their family. Uh, most of these inmates are not serving life sentences and have every intention of going home and seeing their families. And so uh, you're right, the, the staffing shortages are hard on both the inmates and the guards. Another issue that was addressed is rather than working an eight-hour shift and you're working a 16-hour shift, some of the uh, correctional officers also have trouble finding childcare. I mean, it's one thing to pay for eight hours of childcare. It's another thing to pay for 16 hours of childcare. And then you have to make that choice. Uh, do I go to work or do I take care of my child? Yeah. And I'll just add, I mean, there are similar effects in other areas. Uh, I, I talked to the Idaho Youth Ranch. Um, they're a local nonprofit. And 
they run thrift stores around the state and the thrift stores are meant to benefit um, children's programs. They do children's counseling and that's the whole point of the nonprofit. And these stores help fund those programs. So to start with, they're having trouble hiring for the thrift stores and in their warehouses. Um, In their warehouse, they're competing with other companies like Amazon, which recently opened a, a warehouse in Napa. When they don't have enough workers in the thrift stores and the warehouses, they can't sell as much goods. Uh, essentially, there's nobody to restock the shelves with the things they're trying to sell. And it trickles down to other areas. I mean, they're also having trouble hiring counselors. And they recently announced um, they had to close a, a shelter, Hayes House, um, which is a shelter for uh, kids who are homeless or um, need care. And they just had to shut it down because they didn't have enough staff. Um, And it's going to remain closed until they can hire more counselors. Oh, wow. That's disappointing. I was unaware of that. Ryan, is there anything else that you think maybe listeners should know about uh, the ongoing issue of the workforce in Idaho and how we move forward? Well, um, how we move forward is difficult. Um, And I'm sure people have already seen um, the impacts. I mean, you go to a restaurant and it's now closed on Monday. Um, I talked to a restaurant in Napa called Holy Cow Burger Joint, and they were one of the ones struggling since April to hire people. As a result, the owner said, we have to close on Mondays because we just don't have the staffing. In addition to that, um, because the people that they have working there now have been working so hard, the owner decided for two five-day periods, they're going to close down this year. Um, And that's just to give people a break because... They don't really get a break other than that. Um, And I think those are the kinds of things you're going to see moving forward is people have to make long-term changes to how they run their business. Um, Maybe it's a two-week vacation. The the place just closes. So I would say uh, for people listening, um, what you could do is be patient. (laughs) If you see a restaurant closed um, that you love and it's inconvenient for you, just know that this might be necessary to give people a break. So I'd say be patient and uh, be understanding of uh, staff that are working extra hard these days. Ryan Soupy, I appreciate your time today and have a good afternoon. Thanks, Ruth. So Ruth, you talked earlier this morning with Ryan Soupy from the Idaho Press about labor shortages in Idaho, and your conversation was mostly about labor in the private sector. But you also touched on shortages and staffing issues at the Department of Corrections. And I know you've done some reporting of your own on this. Can you walk me through a little bit what you found? So last month, Director T. Walt met with uh, some legislators in committee and oversight committee and explained to them the sort of dire circumstances that they were in for staffing. Uh, He reported 215 correctional officer vacancies in September. Uh, Correctional officers are uh, the folks that uh, patrol the prisons. And largely, they were struggling to retain and recruit COs due to salaries. Uh, It's a competitive market right now in the pandemic. And IDOC's correctional officer starting pay used to start at $16.75 an hour. And recently, because of the needed staffing, they increased the starting pay to $19 an hour, which isn't as competitive as it could be to some of the neighboring states, but it's certainly an improvement. And uh, during the meeting, Director T. Wald said, with that uh, new pay offer, 
they got more than 100 uh, applicants for COs, which is vitally important because with the shortage of COs, there was uh, mandatory overtime and other issues that present problems for the correctional officers and for the inmates. Um, COs were working 12, 16 hour shifts, which gets hard. You know, they don't spend a lot of time with their families. Uh, if they have children, they need to work out childcare for those longer shifts. But among other things, they uh, offered signing bonuses and retention bonuses. The department was offering one-time $1,500 sign-on bonuses for newly hired COs, as well as a potential $1,500 yearly retention bonus for the first five years of employment for current COs. And that was uh, an effort to prevent COs from leaving to go to um, other facilities. For example, uh, the Oregon Snake River facility over in Ontario, just across the border, their starting pay is at $22.64 an hour. And even in Idaho, some county detention deputies were making $19.50 an hour. And of course, the IDOC CEOs know that. And you can't blame them for wanting to leave to get a starting salary that's uh, higher than what they were getting. So it sounds like uh, Director T. Walt was making real efforts to uh, increase the starting salaries and keep the COs that he has. So it's both an issue of a shortage of applicants as well as a uh, issue of turnover. It is, yeah. I think uh, they were struggling and we'll see how the legislature uh, handles that when their budget request comes around. Um, I think Director T. Walt also knows that uh, the parole officers who are also state employees did not get the same raises that the IDOC correctional officers got. And so they need to find a way to remedy that parity because you know I'm sure the parole officers are aware that the COs are now getting paid more. And um, parity seems to be a priority for Director T. Walt, but um, that'll be a budget request. And, see where the legislature takes it. So since we're before budget writing season, where is the money for these CEO raises? I believe most of it came from federal coronavirus um, relief funds. So in the future, that money would have to come from the legislature, I assume? Yeah, they'll need an ongoing appropriation as there is for all um, state uh, employees, full-time positions. And you and I, as employees of Idaho Public Television, are state employees, but we're not talking about ourselves now. I just want to make sure that listeners are aware we are employees of the state. Um, moving away from prisons a little bit to another area, you've also done some coverage of the wildfire season, and uh, there have been employment issues there. Can you walk me through that? Sure. Uh, so it has been a uh, record-breaking year for wildfires in Idaho and in other states. The climate was perfect for wildfires to burn. During a land board meeting, uh, the Idaho Department of Lands uh, director, uh, Director Miller, talked about uh, some needs to remedy the salaries that his firefighters are getting. We are living in a time where having uh, firefighters on salary is vitally important. We can't just let uh, public lands burn. But the issue is Department of Lands firefighters do not get paid as much as firefighters who fight fires for the federal agencies, such as the U.S. Forest Service and uh, BLM firefighters. Additionally, BLM firefighters and U.S. Forest Service firefighters get uh, hazard pay, 
and Department of Lands firefighters do not get hazard pay. And of course, those firefighters are aware that when they're on the fire line, uh, standing next to a BLM firefighter, one is getting hazard pay and the other is not. And so Director Miller has discussed um, bringing forward uh, legislation in the 2022 legislative session to uh, provide Department of Lands firefighters with hazard pay. Uh, and I think we're living in a time where firefighters are working harder than they ever have before. And they know that there is a demand for firefighters so they could easily leave to go to a different agency. And I think Idaho is well aware of that. And so they need to find ways to retain these firefighters and make them feel valued for the, the work they do. Um, so we've covered correctional officers in the prisons. We've covered firefighters uh, with the Department of Lands. Now let's move on to schools. You've been covering a slew of meetings. You've also covered uh, staffing issues in the schools with the Board of Education. Can you walk me through that as well? Sure. So the State Board of Education on September 24th held a meeting to discuss coronavirus in schools. Uh, of course, the latest variant is affecting children uh, more than uh, it was in the previous school year, which is concerning both for the health of children, but also the spread of infections um, to both students and staff. Um, Andy Grover with the Idaho Association of School Administrators uh, spoke to the Board of Education about the staffing concerns that he has. Uh, when a teacher is out sick and he or she needs to quarantine, of course they need a substitute to come in and teach that class in person. There is a shortage of substitute teachers in Idaho in part because they do not pay them very well. Uh, there's a shortage of other non-administrative positions as well, including bus drivers, custodians, again, substitute teachers. And he was discussing if we don't remedy this, there is the possibility that it won't just be coronavirus that shuts down schools. It will be a shortage of staff that shuts down schools. If there's no one there to teach the children, then what's the point of having the children attend school? Um, this has been an issue uh, in the Gooding School District, I believe. Yeah, yesterday, Monday, uh, in a Facebook post, Gooding announced that school would be closed on Tuesday due to a shortage of bus drivers. Um, and that they would be evaluating the closure on a day-to-day -day basis after that, which um, if students aren't able to be in school and parents have to figure out alternative uh, childcare or stay home to provide childcare themselves, that just exacerbates those, those issues that you and Ryan were talking about earlier. And I know here in the Treasure Valley, some of the schools have, uh, well, they do have a shortage of bus drivers, which then in turn uh, it takes longer to pick up and drop off uh, the children. Uh, so they get there later and they get home later. And that's just due to a shortage. Uh, I think many bus drivers are retirees. And so I don't know if the issue is both what the bus drivers are paid, but also a concern about being around um, potentially exposing themselves to coronavirus. And of course, there's a whole lot of documented evidence that people over the age of 65, even 55, are at a higher risk of um, serious illness or death due to coronavirus. And so that's an ongoing concern. And I think the State Board of Education and the Idaho legislature will need to look at some ways to remedy this. How can we pay substitutes more, bus drivers more, uh, and incentivize them to keep, keep helping uh, schools stay open. 
And of course, teacher pay has also been a topic of discussion in the legislature in past years as well. I think I, Ryan said to you, it's been an, an intersection of pre-pandemic and during pandemic issues that are really coming together and straining the labor market. Sure. I think historically, um, Idaho teachers, both full-time teachers and substitutes, do get paid less than neighboring states. So it's hard to retain those teachers. But again, I think that's been an ongoing issue for years. Uh, the pandemic and the change in the workforce, what people are willing to work for, has changed. It's it's a shifting cycle of how are how are we, Idahoans, going to meet the demands of workers. We've seen the same issues in the private sector and the public sector during the pandemic, and I think it is telling of what Idaho workers are willing to um, tolerate, and it's been a real reckoning uh, in the state. So I'm sure that's something legislators are going to have to have to face in 2022. All right. Thanks for letting me talk to you, Ruth. The Idaho Reports podcast will be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and subscribe to our Friday newsletter for a weekly roundup of coverage from the Idaho Reports team. You'll find all of those links at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.